As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know. From HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. So this is Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, archaeology was the first word, first big word I could spell early. Yeah. I was like two weeks old. And you're spelling archaeology. Yeah. Couldn't spell anything else in, for years yeah. and years, but I could spell archaeology. I love archaeology. Yeah, me too. It's one of my favorite things, actually. Me too. Although I didn't list that when I was asked what my favorite things were in that one listener mail. <laughs> Still, right. it's up there. Yeah. Um, but you too, huh? Oh, yeah. Starting with, uh, well, starting with Indiana Jones. Yeah, that definitely helps. Yeah. That that we were alive in, at the right age when those came out. Oh, yeah. Um, well, Chuck, there's a, a ship, it's an unnamed ship as far as I know, that went down in the Aegean Sea off the coast of a tiny, teeny little spit of land called Antikythera in Greece, in between Crete and the Greek mainland, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, in 1901, or 1900, it was discovered, and it actually ended up giving birth to the field of um, marine archaeology, actually. It yeah. was the first shipwreck that was ever excavated archaeologically. Yeah, I think I wrote an article on that way back in the day. Underwater archaeology? Yeah. It's uh, very tricky. I would imagine so. Because most of the stuff you find is falling apart. Like the second you take it out of water, it starts falling apart. Right. So they've gotten really good now, and I imagine they were not as good about it in 1900, <laughs> about bringing stuff up still in water. Yeah. And transporting it in water. Makes in that sense. Same seawater. Display it in water? To, uh, well, no, then they start poking around. Mm. Underwater. In, yeah. Makes in, sense. in a lab. Right. Underwater, yeah. With the water. It's That's pretty right. sensible. Sure. Um, I could have come up with that, I think. With that method? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> um, well, so, okay. Anyway, this shipwreck that was discovered in 1900 was discovered actually by accident, right? Yeah, there were some uh, sponge divers. You know, sponge diving, it's a big deal. Uh, apparently, it was in Greece. <laughs> it was. That's where you had to get sponges back in the day, uh, is in the ocean. And they were these sponge divers who, they actually got blown off course by a bad storm and ended up in that lovely part of town. And, uh, and they said, boy, this is great. Let's just dive here. Right. One guy dove down, came back up, and they they weren't free diving at this point. They actually had, you can listen to our, well, it wasn't a diving bell, but 
underwater breathing apparatuses at this point. Right. He came back and he's like, oh, my God, there's dead horses and dead men everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And the boss is like, oh, I don't know about that. Let me go dive down there. He dives down and comes up with a bronze hand and says, you big dummy. Did he smack the guy over the head with it? It's a statue and a bunch of statues down there decomposing. And then he went, wait, why are there a bunch of statues down there? Yeah. And they uh, they said, well, let's figure out, let's remember where the spot is and we'll just head off to North Africa and do our sponge diving like we were going to initially. Yeah, they still had to make some dough. Right. But when they came back, they took the bronze arm and the, the location of the ship to the Greek um, government. And the Greek government said, you know what? This could be a big deal. Yeah. We have a lot of antiquities out there under the sea, and this might be some sort of treasure trove. So they hired these sponge divers to go back and excavate this place, and they found some pretty amazing stuff. In addition to the bronze arm, they found all sorts of marble statues. Um, they found a bronze statue of a um, a young athlete. I think it was like six feet tall, a little bigger than life is what they call it. Yeah. Um, they found a bust of a cynic, a philosopher. A very detailed lifelike bust. It's really neat. And, um. That was the guy whose, uh, arm. That was his arm. Oh, it was his arm? Yeah. Okay. Um, and they found all manner of stuff, some really cool stuff, and brought it up and they displayed it in the museum. And among this trove, um, there was a greatly overlooked item, item number 15087. And, um, it was this weird kind of, it looked almost like a kind of a clock face. In a wooden frame, and no one knew what it was. And compared to the the amazing art that had been brought up, it it looked like a pile of garbage, basically. So they just filed it away, um, and it it languished for a while until it was um, kind of rediscovered again. Yeah, and giving credit where credit is due, the uh, sponge uh, team captain, I think that's what they call themselves. He was captain sponge uh, team. Yeah, sponge team. Captain Demetrius Contos, and then the uh, crybaby who dove down there and thought uh-huh. he saw dead people, yeah. was Elias uh, Stadiatus. And if there's one thing I love, it's Greek names. Yeah? Love the names. Do you like those as much as archaeology? Greek archaeologists, you're pretty much flying in the upper atmosphere okay. for me. Uh, so those were the dudes that led the sponge team, and uh, all those... Antiquities. They're scattered about a little bit, but most of them are in the National Archaeological Museum in Athens, Greece, uh, and also some in Switzerland, oddly enough, and then some more in a different museum of underwater antiquities in Greece. And the reason the Greeks went to this trouble and didn't just say, whatever, who cares about a bronze arm? Apparently, they'd uh, been defeated recently by the Ottoman Turks within the last few years. And we're looking for a way to restore some national pride. Yeah. And what better way to restore national pride than raising 2,000-year-old statues sure. of your you know, ancient gods yeah. that I were mean, made by your predecessors? Yeah, and not only statues, but um, lamps and bowls and uh, utensils and tools and just all sorts of stuff. It was a treasure trove. Yeah, so um, this, this site still is ba- basically intact. Um, it's a, it's the shipwreck is over, um, a couple of, I think 300, about a 300 foot span, about the length of a football field. Yeah. And there's actually, for a long time, they thought it was two ships. Yeah. But they think actually, no, it was an enormous, massive ship yeah. that broke into two and is, um, 
they've only just found the front. They found like the cabin. They haven't even found the hold. And that it was a huge grain ship that had been converted to basically a treasure ship that was taking Greek antiquities to Rome around 60 BCE. Um, and it sunk. So they, there's all these treasures that they haven't even found yet. They, they dove on it in 1901. Jacques Cousteau hit it up in 1950 and then again in 1976. Yeah. And now there's a, the most sophisticated dives that are being taken on it. Team um, Zisu was on it? Yes, he's <laughs> on it. Um, as of 2014, there's a, an international team that includes some people from Woods Hole Geographic Institute or Oceanographic Institute, um, who are really starting to, to figure this out. Yeah, and, you know, one of the reasons they're still doing this is because, like you said, it's just a great find no matter what. But the other reason is because item number 15087, uh, a.k.a. the, uh, how is that pronounced again? Anakathera. Anakathera mechanism is um, one of the most mysterious finds ever because nobody knows who made it. Uh, and until recently, no one knew exactly what it was. But now yeah. they've pretty much figured it out. Yeah, well, so when they when they first brought it up in 1901, um, again, it just looked like some weird kind of kind of like a, a clock, but it was in a wooden frame. As the wooden frame was exposed to the air, it it split. Yeah, and the the stuff inside fell apart. And when it fell apart, one of the um, directors of the museum, I believe, Spiridon Stais, another great name, um, he looked inside and realized that these are all like actually different bronze parts and they have inscriptions and they appear to be geared teeth. Yeah, like precision gears. Right. But he said that's impossible because that technology didn't come along for well over a thousand years later. Yes. A thousand plus, like maybe 1400 to 2000 years later. Right. So it pops up in the West about uh, the 14th century in Europe. So yeah, like you say, it's totally impossible that this could be what what he's looking at. Yeah, not 50 or 100 years. So some people said, um, this thing probably accidentally was dropped over this wreck site and just happened to nestle in and make it seem like it was part of this ancient shipwreck. Nope. No. It was found underneath other debris in the shipwreck, so that's virtually impossible. But it was so confounding and it so completely undermined our understanding at the time of technology like that and just the understanding of that kind of precision engineering um, that it was just set aside like no one knows what this is let's just pretend it doesn't exist yeah uh, and that happened until uh, about the 1950s and uh, we'll take a little break here and we'll get back to what happened in the 1950s right after this you, you, you know stop 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 you should know As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. 
Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. All right, so it's 1950s. Everyone's drunk at lunch, smoking cigarette, throwing trash out of their window. Right, and there's an impossible machine rotting away in a uh, museum in Greece. That's right, and that's when a man named Derek DeSolo Price uh, said, "You know what? Uh, this thing is pretty neat, and I think I'm going to make this my new obsession." So he spent years researching this thing, and basically said, "I think it's some sort of weird." Uh, he said, "Computer." He meant well. He didn't mean computer. Because it can't be a computer, obviously. It's not programmable. No. So it can't be a computer. But it's, uh, I mean, that word's not terribly far off. Yeah. It's not a computer. Okay. So he's using the wrong word there. But uh, along with Dr. C, uh, man, another great Greek name. Thomas Howell. Karakalos. (laughs) He's a radiographer. He said, let's take some x-rays of this thing. In 1974, he published his findings in Gears from the Greeks, which he thought was going to light the world on fire. Yeah. But it turns out people were a little scared uh, to say, yeah, this thing is predates these kind of precision gears by well over a thousand years. So let's rethink everything we know about this kind of technology. Everyone, No one wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole is what I gathered. No. It, so it was kind of ignored. They, uh, the At the time, the people who were studying ancient Greece were studying their written documents, right? They weren't studying like artifacts like physical relics or anything like that and they certainly weren't really up on the ancient greek techno- technology yeah um and so yeah he wrote this this book and just expected it to change the world because he really had approached it from a very scientific standpoint when they finally released this book in the 70s yeah, right his theory on what it was was correct yeah he theorized that it was a, a i'm going to use the word computer uh, uh, all right, a mechanism. Yeah, that's it, what it is. It was a mechanism <laughs> with, um, at one point, up to 72 different precise gears, tooth gears, that all interacted with one another to track the movement of the celestial bodies. Yeah. The um, the five planets that were visible to the naked eye, the sun, the moon, it tracked eclipses, solar and lunar, um, and it also... Um, it track the Olympic Games just as an added bonus. Well, if you're going to have a, a astronomical calculator, you may as well throw in a sports calendar. 
Yeah, you know, <laughs> might as well. <laughs> uh, and the so the the whole thing again. This thing should not have existed. Like, like it wasn't for another fourteen hundred, thirteen hundred years before anything like this appeared in the West. Yeah. Um, so it shouldn't have been, which is another reason why a lot of people weren't like, yes, this is a great book, Gears from the Greeks. Uh, it changed everything. They were like, you're totally full of it. And this poor guy, um, Price, was not helped at all by a guy named Eric von Daniken. Right? Yeah, he wrote a book in uh, 1968 called Chariots of the Gods. And in that, he proposed that um, there are aliens who have been bringing us technological gifts to Earth, and this is one of them. And everyone, this was a really popular book. So he got all the headlines with just a completely fabricated story. Yeah, it was like, it was the birth of the interest in ufology and the Bermuda Triangle, the Nazca lines are um, landing strips, that kind of stuff, right? That's right. So when this guy came along and put his stamp of um, uh, nuttiness, I guess. Sure. If certainly interesting, that whole Time Life Mysteries series oh, yeah. definitely came out of this uh, Von Daniken's work kind of thing. But it, it, it had nothing to do with any kind of academia or scholarliness, right? That's right. So he really helped put the kibosh on Price's work, this uh, Gears from the Greeks. And it languished for a while, um, for a, another couple of decades, I believe, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, it wasn't until the mid-2000s that they um, decided, you know what, we had this great technology now called CT scanning, computed uh, tomography, and what we can do with this stuff, we can actually get inside this thing. And there are videos of this actually being done uh, on the mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's really cool looking. You can like watch it unfold in real time. And they basically figured out from the inside out how this thing worked and how it operated. Yeah. And it is as follows. There's a picture like a a wooden box. Okay. About, um, about the size of a shoe box, right? Yeah. It looks bigger to me, but I guess... Um, I saw someone else des- describe it like a thick laptop size. Oh, okay. Again with the computers. People just can't stop. It's a computer. <laughs> an ancient computer. Uh, on one side of the box, if, you, if it's standing like a shoebox on end, on one side there's a, a crank, like a, just a small dial with a little handle mm-hmm. they would use to crank this thing up. The handle's missing now, by the way. This is, yeah, this no more is handle. what you're describing is what it looked like originally, right? Oh, yeah. I okay. mean, now it's just disintegrated blobs and chunks of things. Yeah. Yeah. So the knob on the side is what wound it forward and backward. And uh, then you had a big front side and a back side. All the gears are in the middle, contained therein. Yes. And again, these are gears with teeth between 15 and 223 of them on a gear. And all of them, the number of teeth that they have, has to do with their relationship to the other gears they interact with. That's right. So they have all these different hands. If you wound it up, it would engage these gears. Uh, Each of the hands uh, moves at a separate pace and represents what you said earlier, the five planets and Earth and the moon. Basically, um, uh, sun, and, sun moon. and moon. Basically, anything we could see from Earth at this point. Right. And these are the gears inside. And the gears are physically representing how the, say, the sun and the moon interact. Yeah. Well, no, these are the hands. Right. But then they're driving the hands. And the hands have a representation in the form yeah. of a colored orb on the face of the uh, the actual mechanism, the machine. Exactly. So on the back side, you've got two more dial systems. Uh, one is a calendar of the lunar and solar eclipse. 
And another one, um, basically, like you said, was the sports calendar. Right. The Olympics are coming up. Then four years after that, there'll be more Olympics. Yes. So four years. <laughs> so on the front, it was it tracked the day, right? That was the big the big front face of it. I believe it did. Okay. Um, and then on the back, when it's when it's tracking eclipses, um, that that actually. So Chuck, when you make a clock. The whole purpose of a clock is so any guy can come along and be like, oh, it's this day, right? Yeah. So you want your clock to be accurate. The problem is if you're tracking just the solar calendar or you're tracking just the movement of the moon, your clock is going to – or your calendar is eventually going to fall out of sync. Yeah. And all of a sudden something like uh, one of the solstices, your summer solstice is going to show up in December after 18 years, right? Yeah. So – to do that, and this has been like one of the big things that clockmakers and calendar makers have had to deal with forever, you have to figure out how to reconcile the movement of the sun and the moon yeah. with your calendar so that it stays up to date, literally, right? Yeah. And like they, mechanically up to date. Mechanically, but also mathematically, right? So uh, several great thinkers figured out that if you take um, the tracking of the moon and extrapolate it by enough times, it will eventually sync up years down the line with the solar calendar. Yeah. I think over the course of like 19 years. And this is what's called the metonic cycle, right? Yes. There's like 534 phases of the moon in one 19-year period. Yeah. And if you can track that, then you can keep your calendar in sync. This is the level of sophistication that the um, an, uh, the Antikythera mechanism operates on. That's and right. to this point, we did not realize that the ancient Greeks had this level of understanding of astronomy. Yeah, it was, it was a big it was a big find for a lot of reasons, and that's one of them for sure. Yeah, and one of the reasons that we know that they knew this, and we're not just kind of putting our own ideas onto it, is when they used that computer tomography, they found inscriptions on all these different gears, which basically said how they work and what they track, which is another reason this find was so amazing. It basically had an instruction manual engraved on it. That's right. And we will talk more about that right after this. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano. Huh? Oh. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, 
We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. All right, so you're talking about the inscriptions. Um, like you said, it was a user's guide. Yeah. If there's going to be a sophisticated piece of equipment, like uh, this computer, it's going to come with a book that says, here's how you use it. Uh, so the finding, I mean, they're doing a pretty good job of discovering the stuff on their own, but then finding the user's guide and right. piecing that together became even a bigger part of the puzzle. It did. And then that user guide also, too, if like you're an anthropologist from 500 years in the future and you happen upon a user guide to a, a Mac or something, right? Yeah. It also describes like the level of technology that the people who built this computer had. Yeah. It like in writing it says this is what we know, this is what we understand. So again, this backdated the understanding of astronomy among the Greeks to far earlier than we'd ever given them credit for. Yeah. And it confirmed a lot of stuff that had been dis- thrown out over the years as flights of fancy or imagination by writers who had cited this kind of understanding um, of the people of their time. And later historians were like, these people were just, just making it up and it was a lucky guess. This, this mechanism has helped show, no, these, these guys actually knew what they were talking about. Yeah, one of those was um, there was a belief, uh, well, by some, but not held by others, that um, ancient Greeks had calendars where they excluded certain days to uh, adjust the lengths of the months. Right. And a lot of people are like, no, 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 no. There's, there's no way that they were that sophisticated. This machine basically and the accompanying guidebook proved it yeah. to be true. It's true. Which is pretty great. It is. And uh, because of its sophistication, there are a list of people from that time that they think may have had a hand in this. Yeah. Um, of course, Archimedes, he's going to be in there anytime something special is found. Yeah, and there's actually writing about Archimedes creating a um, like a, a sphere, a yeah. three-dimensional model that actually doesn't really sound like the no. um, Antikythera mechanism. No, but he'll be on any list if you find something that, like any mechanism uh-huh. that is sophisticated. Uh, Hipparchus, who I think, I don't know if we talked about him yet or not, He's a mathematician and astronomer, mm-hmm. and uh, I think he the time period worked out for him, so he could have been one of the people involved. He, my money's on him. You think? Yeah. Or his student Poseidonus. Oh, okay. Was that uh, Posidonius? Yeah, I like Poseidonus. <laughs> I'm sure he did too, because that makes him sound like a, a Greek god. Yeah. Uh, there are also uh, some other uh, hints, you know, trying to piece together the the mystery. Um, one of the inscriptions uh, refers to an athletic event in Rhodes. Which is where uh, Hipparchus taught, where his school was. Yeah, and there's a man named Alexander Jones. He's a specialist at NYU. And that's what he said, my money's on Rhodes. Is that, that's where this thing came from. Yeah, Hipparchus. Yeah. Maybe Poseidonus. <laughs> 
Uh, the the other thing that helps is um, well, it doesn't help necessarily um, Hipparchus's case, but it kind of excludes Archimedes. Some researchers um, looked at old Babylonian records of eclipses and tried to sync this thing up, and apparently they were able to exclude hundreds of different possibilities and settled on 205 BCE being the start date for the mechanism. Yeah, I think it was a little older than they originally thought, right? Yeah, they were thinking 50 to 100 BCE. Yeah. And they're like, no, 205 is probably the date that this thing was intended to be set to. Because, again, this thing's tracking the the movements of the bodies in the heavens based on the movement of the sun and the moon. And how do you track that? By tracking eclipses. So you would want to set it to an eclipse because there has to be some starting point to set it to, right? Sure. So they figured it was 205. Well, Archimedes, as you remember, we did a, a whole episode on him. Did we do some on the death ray, maybe? Yes. Um, he was killed by a Roman soldier in 212 um, because he wouldn't pay attention to the soldier who was telling him to, to um, pay attention, I think. <laughs> but he was killed in 212, so that probably excludes him. He was so he broke. Was so smart, he knew that a, a, an eclipse was coming in seven years and wanted his mechanism to start then. He was so broke he couldn't pay attention. Nice. Did you ever hear that one? No. This is my first time. What, hearing that joke? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those are good, you know, in the uh, burn contest or whatever. Sure. What do they call it? Your mama jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Kids. It's a good one, though. Uh, What (laughs) else? What else you got here? Did not think that was going to make an appearance in this episode. (laughs) Um, Well, since then, there have been uh, 10 models, at least 10, Mm -hmm. um, that have been built kind of recreating this thing. Um, There was a watchmaker that um, got into it, and, of course, that was a pretty – the way this thing's put together, it seems like a watch and clockmaker would be an ideal candidate. Yeah, Hublot uh, made one. Well, they made three of this watch. And it's it's like a watch version of it. That's pretty amazing. It's pretty cool. I wonder how much they went for those three. Oh, I'm sure they were pretty cheap. Uh, somebody made one out of Legos. Yeah. Did, was it a Lego set or was it just someone made a Lego model? Oh, they made a Lego model. Oh, it was okay. like an Apple engineer. I didn't know. I thought it might have been a Lego set, <clears throat> like a very obscure Lego set. Uh, not yet. I'll bet, though, the, the engineer's like, I'll sell you these plans, Lego, <laughs> if you want them. Old Kirk. Chuck, there's one thing that um, it's amazing when we're like, wow, you know, this this knowledge is even older than we we thought. Yeah. And a lot of people um, point out that in the West, yes, it took until the 14, the 14th century for this knowledge to come about. Yeah. We likely got it from um, Muslims, Muslim scholars. Yeah. But it's possible that it came to the West via Muslim scholars from the Greeks. So this knowledge was around. Right. The uh, Muslims that were interacting with the Greeks gained this knowledge, and they had it uh, themselves until they finally interacted with us in the West yeah. in, in the 14th century, right? It's pretty amazing. But other people are like, yeah, that's great. Why didn't the Greeks build on this? If they had this sophisticated an understanding of yeah. how to track time and the movement of, of the heavenly bodies... Why did they stop there? Well, they may not have. <clears throat> they did. That's the thing. Well, no. I mean, 
until we find the next thing that was right, but, three or four hundred years after that that we previously didn't know about. No, the point is, is like, why didn't they build stuff that survived and came down to this day? And they didn't. Like, there's, there's incontrovertibly, they did not build on it, or else we would have it today. And Arthur C. Clarke is saying, if they had built on this level of sophistication and it had continued uninterrupted. Today we'd be traveling amongst the stars by now after 2,000 years of having this knowledge. Yeah. I don't see how anyone can say that though. How can he say that they'll never find <laughs> another mechanism the, you, after this that built on this? The, you won't. What I'm saying is that knowledge wasn't built on and built on and built on and built on uninterrupted. Oh, so they may have built on yeah, it. Yeah, they, they could have, but for what, from what we understand, they, gotcha. they didn't. My money's on finding something else that makes a little more sense out of this. Well, they did find something else. In 1983, a man in Beirut was in a bazaar and found some weird geared mechanism. Yeah. And they figured out that it was a 6th century CE um, calendar, like a geared calendar. It's the second oldest geared mechanism known to humankind for now, after the uh, Antikythera mechanism. We may find an entire civilization underwater. With Jar Jar Binks? Sorts. No, but you never know. All right. You never know. That's you never know. <laughs> I'm sure before they found this, they were saying that they were never advanced enough to make something like this. Yeah, the, the point isn't that, that they weren't advanced enough. The point is, is they didn't build on this advancement. Until we find out that they have. Right. Well, whatever. Whatever came in and broke that building on it and right. interrupted it, that was... That sucks because we could be far more advanced than we are. Yeah, it could have been a volcano that covered a laboratory in ash. Sure, that sunk underwater, and that's <laughs> where that underwater civilization's been. Yeah, you never know in the lab. Uh, if you want to know more about the Antikythera mechanism, you just try your hand at spelling that. It's fun to say, isn't it? Yeah, and it's easy to spell if you sound it <clears> out. Um, and do that in the search bar at How Stuff Works. And since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this Mia Culpa. Hey, guys, absolutely love Stuff You Should Know and have listened to every episode many more than once. Uh, you keep me company on uh, many a long commute. While I was listening to the Voynich Manuscript podcast, which was awesome, I noticed Chuck said a possible explanation was mental illness. Josh uh, said yes, like an autistic monk. Uh, I'm sure you know this, but autism is a developmental disorder, not a mental illness. I'm a behavioral therapist who works with autistic children. It makes me very sensitive to these matters. Uh, thanks for your great work. My favorite ever was Berlin Wall. And that is from Trisha Flowers. And I think her subject line was, I still love you guys. <laughs> uh, so we gotten quite a lot of feedback on this. And I'll let you take it away. It was a mistake. Yeah, I just totally misspoke. Yeah. I don't think that uh, uh, autism is a form of mental illness. What I should have said and meant to say was, or an autistic monk. Right. Or a monk with autism, I think is the proper way to put it yeah so not uh, not like yeah sometimes in the heat of the moment sure like or as but yes no i, I don't think that those two are the same yeah so all apologies people we we certainly don't think that and yeah. uh, i always want to correct ourselves so we appreciate yeah, especially you. when something we say accidentally causes um, distress among people there's no sure. reason to let that stand agreed yeah uh yeah so thank you trisha we appreciate you um, writing in to let us, well, set us straight, call us out, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, in a very nice way. Yes. Uh, and if you want to set us straight or say whatever, you can get in touch with us via SYSK Podcast on Twitter. 
You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can hang out with us on facebook.com slash stuff you should know. And as always, hang out with us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.